Jonah chapter 3. We're going to look at all 10 verses this morning. Then the word of the Lord came to Jonah the second time, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it the message that I tell you. So Jonah rose and went to Nineveh according to the word of the Lord. Now Nineveh was an exceedingly great city, three days' journey in breadth. Jonah began to go into the city, going a day's journey, and he called out, Yet forty days, and Nineveh shall be overthrown. And the people of Nineveh believed God. They called for a fast and put on sackcloth from the greatest of them to the least of them, The word reached the king of Nineveh, and he arose from his throne, removed his robe, covered himself with sackcloth, and sat in ashes. And he issued a proclamation and published through Nineveh, by the decree of the king and his nobles, let neither man nor beast, herd nor flock, taste anything, let them not feed or drink water, but let man and beast be covered with sackcloth. And let them call out mightily to God. Let everyone turn from his evil way and from the violence that is in his hands. Who knows? God may turn and relent and turn from his fierce anger so that we may not perish. When God saw what they did, how they turned from their evil way, God relented of the disaster that he said he would do to them, and he did not do it. Word of the Lord, brothers and sisters. You know, we hear the word revival tossed around a lot today in the modern church. It usually involves a tent, uh, maybe an auditorium, and a series of midweek meetings uh, designed to get the church excited and to uh, fire up uh, not just the church, but to fire up lost people and show them the way to salvation. For some denominations, revival is just a long-standing tradition. It happens every year. It's usually in the summertime. And a lot of revivals that we see are gospel-centered, but not always. There are some prophetic revivals. There are some revivals that claim to be healing revivals. And uh, the one thing that most of them have in common is that most of the people who participate in the revivals believe that it is the catalyst for grace, that the revival will catalyze God's grace. In other words, first comes the revival, then comes an outpouring of grace. Or perhaps you would say that the word is preached and then grace flows freely upon the preaching of the word. While that sounds good, I beg to differ. As a matter of fact, what we're going to see in our passage this morning is that grace flows long before any revival begins long before any preaching occurs. As a matter of fact, I'm willing to say that unless grace is already flowing, there can be no true revival. Here's my proposition for this morning. No grace, no revival. Just as simple as that. And that's what I hope to show you in the passage where we're going to see one of the most incredible revivals in the Bible. It's an astounding one. Now, the revival depicted in Jonah chapter 3 can be broken down into three major events. Here they are. Verses 1 through 4, we see Jonah's commission. Verses 5 through 9, we see Nineveh's confession. And in verse 10, 
we see God's compassion. Now, along the way, uh, as we go through these, we're going to see why revival came to Nineveh uh, and how it came to Nineveh. First, I want you to get caught up on Jonah's story. It's been a couple weeks since we've looked at it. Jonah is a prophet of God. Uh, he is sent to Nineveh in Assyria. Assyria is a sworn enemy of Israel. Jonah is a prophet uh, to Israel. So Jonah, an otherwise godly man, didn't want to go. They were the enemy. He didn't want to have to go minister to Ninevites. Now, there were some very good reasons for that. We'll get to that in just a second. But what happened was Jonah ran in the other direction. He got on a ship trying to get as far away from where God wanted him to go as he could possibly get. Well, God sends a storm to threaten the ship. Jonah reveals to the crew of the ship that he's the reason that the storm has come upon the ship, that, that God is chastising him. The crew, at Jonah's very strong suggestion, throws Jonah overboard, and the sea immediately calms down. Now, what happens in the middle of all that is the sailors begin to worship God. The sailors received that the storm was a type of grace that was uh, uh, descended upon them so that they could see the power of God. They saw that their deliverance came by the grace of God. So the sailors received grace. And the amazing thing is, despite how it looks, Jonah receives grace as well. And Jonah's grace comes in the form of a big fish that swallows Jonah rather than allowing Jonah to drown. So Jonah spends three days in the belly of the fish, and all three days Jonah is worshiping God and praising God for saving him. He's giving God glory and honor. Jonah knew that he had no chance of surviving in the sea. The Jews were not really famous for how well they swam. So this praise and, and worship that comes out of Jonah when he's in the belly of the whale uh, is a key component in the story. So I want you to hold on to that. We're not going to find out why it's a key component of the story until we get to chapter 4, but hold on to that idea because Jonah is humbled. He is grateful. He is contrite in his praise. He's fully realizing that he has been the recipient of an amazing saving grace. And upon Jonah's confession, the fish vomits him out on dry ground. And that brings us to our passage this morning. So let's take a look at the first of our three events in the revival that we see in Nineveh, Jonah's commission. That event starts in chapter, in verse 1. Then the word of the Lord came to Jonah the second time, saying... Now, now, let's just pause right there for a second. We're going to take a couple breaks as we go through these. Okay. Understand what's happening here. Jonah already heard the word of the Lord the first time. He heard explicitly what God wanted him to do. He nearly died for refusing to listen, for refusing to obey. Jonah received incredible grace, and he is acutely aware of the fact that God has saved him. And right on the tail of being saved, Jonah gets a second chance. I love that. Jonah gets a second chance. A second chance to do what? Right there in verse 2. To do the same thing. God says, arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it the message that I tell you. So by now, those words are becoming pretty familiar to Jonah, aren't they? 
He heard arise, call out in verse, uh, chapter 1, verse 1. He heard the captain of the boat say, arise, call out your God in, cha- in verse 6 of chapter 1. And so, in, in God, in his initial encounter, repeats himself. He does it again here in a second time. Both times that God says the words, it is to commission Jonah to go to Nineveh and speak out. Now, we talked about this a couple weeks ago. This is not an easy thing. This is why Jonah's running the other way. It would be like God calling you or me to go into Baghdad and stand in the middle of that city tomorrow and and begin proclaiming, you people are evil and God's going to overthrow this city in 40 days. What do you think your chances of survival would be? Not very good. He's asking Jonah to do the same thing. Think about this. I, I mean, Jonah's been front and center, hasn't he? Jonah seems to be the primary character in the book. It, I, the book bears Jonah's name. But there's a very strong undercurrent in the book as well. And if you haven't noticed it yet, you'll see it right now. The undercurrent concerns who? Nineveh. Nineveh. We, we keep hearing about Nineveh. And God's sending the Nineveh. He wants him to proclaim the Nineveh. The book of Jonah seems to be as much about Nineveh as it is about Jonah. So who's the book about? Is it about Jonah or is it about Nineveh? Well, if you remember our time in Joshua, not too long ago, we were learning to read the Bible in order to find out about God, weren't we? We saw these incredible lessons about the character and nature of God, all wrapped up in the story of Joshua. We would do well to remember that when reading Jonah. We're looking at the same thing. We're learning about God in Jonah. One of the first things that we learn about God, and this is important, is that he thinks Nineveh is important. God somehow has placed a priority on Nineveh. It's probably one of the most unlikely places in the world for God to place a priority. It would be like God coming to us and telling Baghdad is an important place. We would naturally rebel against it, but at some point we'd have to submit to it. So, Nineveh is important enough for God to give Jonah a second chance to go there, to give God enough patience to give Jonah the second chance to go there. Now, we, in, in that light, we got to be careful. We hear that God is the God of second chances, and that's really good because sometimes he is, but you know what? Sometimes he's, he's not. So we don't take the second chance for granted. Uh, scripture certainly doesn't. There are a lot of examples in Scripture where there was not a second chance. If you remember the sin of Achan in Joshua chapter 7, Achan didn't have a second chance. If you read Numbers in Numbers 16, the rebellion of the sons of Korah, they didn't have a second chance. Matter of fact, the earth opened up and swallowed the sons of Korah and all of their families as well. So God is neither capricious nor does God lack mercy, but it would be a mistake to think that God owes anybody a second chance. Now, Jonah understands this. He's seen the wrath of God poured out on his people. He's seen the wrath of God poured out on those who oppose his people. He realizes that that wrath almost was poured out on him, but somehow he's been given another chance, and now he is contrite. 
Now, he responds appropriately to his second chance. And that happens in verse 3. So Jonah arose and went to Nineveh according to the word of the Lord. Now, Nineveh was an exceedingly great city, three days' journey in breadth. Let me, let me show you what God's asking Jonah to do here. Because when I was taught this in Sunday school, I was taught that the great fish spit Jonah out close to Nineveh. And that was one of the great ironies of this passage as Jonah was trying to get away and the fish takes him to Nineveh. But Nineveh is a little bit southeast of the Black Sea. It's nowhere near the coast of the Mediterranean. Jonah was spit out on a fish by the fish somewhere on the Mediterranean coast. And even by the most optimistic reckoning, Jonah will have to walk 400 miles to get to Nineveh. A lot of people think it was further south and that he had to walk over 500 miles to get to Nineveh. That walk would take a healthy man 20 to 25 days. And it could conceivably take longer. It could take 40 to 45 days or so. So Jonah is being asked to go do this hard thing, and he's got to endure hardship just to get to the place where he's been asked to do the hard thing. But Jonah walks in obedience. And the funny thing is, we don't hear anything about the trip to Nineveh. We don't know what's going through Jonah's mind. Uh, we, we don't know what he's thinking. All we know is that Jonah is doing what he told. I could see Jonah standing on the shore and going, well, don't I get a donkey or something? You know, do, God, do you know it's 400 miles? And I could see God sitting on the throne. Yeah, I knew that before you got on the boat. So, Jonah's doing what he's told. We also know that Nineveh is a great city. We keep on hearing this, an exceedingly great city. The metropolitan area of Nineveh was three days' journey in breadth. And, and that, that phrase is kind of hard to translate in Hebrew. We keep on running into this in Jonah. Some of the words that, that are used are just hard to translate into something we could understand. Uh, but... But the, the idea is it would take three days to walk about the administrative area of, of Judah, like the metropolitan area of Washington, D.C. That, that would have included, that area would have included a number of small towns, a number of villages, maybe some medium-sized towns, all of which depended on Nineveh, Nineveh for their economy, but also depended on Nineveh for their protection. Um, archaeologists have discovered that for Nineveh proper, for the central city, it was a large city. The wall going around the city proper was at least eight miles long. Any way you shake and bake this, Nineveh is a very large city. And Jonah's commission calls is, is to call out against it. Jonah is delivering a prophecy of pending judgment on Nineveh. And, he, and, and God's sending him to do it. So he arrives... And he preaches his message, the message that God gave him. Verse 4, Jonah began to go into the city, going a day's journey, and he called out, yet 40 days, and Nineveh shall be overthrown. Now, the message was that Nineveh would fall in 40 days. Now, notice, we're not told that, that Jonah is repeatedly going through the city doing this. As far as we know, it's not repeated. There's no indication in the text that the residents had any question about it. I mean, 
as far as the text is concerned, nobody even goes up to, to Jonah and says, so who are you? And where does this message come from? All we see in the text is the word of God proclaimed and anything that happens as a result of that proclamation relies strictly on the strength of the word of God. Now, why that is significant is because we need to understand Jonah didn't have to convince them. He didn't have to persuade them that this was going to happen. Not only did he not have to convince them, but they didn't have to know the details. They didn't, you know, they didn't have to know, well, why is this happening? What did we do wrong? What, we, you know, what are we supposed to do in, in these 40 days? All they had to do was listen to the word of God and obey. And even as we consider that, we need to keep in mind the situation that the Ninevites are in. Assyria, they were part of Assyria. It was a powerful nation, had military dominance for about 18, 20 years or so but it was in decline at this particular time. They were going to rise up again. It's really a sordid story. They're going to rise up again, but in this particular period, they were in decline. They were being threatened by a group of tribes coming out of the northern mountains, uh, and those tribes had progressed to where they were within 100 miles of Nineveh. And they were close enough to Nineveh that all the Ninevites knew about it, and it didn't look as though the Assyrian army was going to be able to stop them. They saw trouble coming. So the word of God falls on the ears of a city that is steeped in fear and apprehension. Do you see, do you see why God gave Jonah a second chance? His plan all along was to get Jonah to Nineveh but Jonah, along the way, had to be refined. Jonah had to learn a lesson. And even as God is teaching Jonah the lesson, he's preparing Nineveh for the lesson that he's going to teach them as well. God's working on a number of levels here. So that's Jonah's commission, to go proclaim this word. That's our first event in the revival. He sent to a city that God had primed to hear his word. Now, that leads us to our next event, and that's Nineveh's response. This is Nineveh's confession, and begins in verse 5. And the people of Nineveh believed God. They called for a fast and put on sackcloth from the greatest of them to the least of them. So what happens is revival breaks out in Nineveh. The city's on fire. The people believe God. Now, there's a subtle message here in the words that the author is using. The, the, the author uses, in this case here, the name for God, Elohim. Elohim, the all-powerful one, the Lord of all creation, the Lord of all living things, uh, the Lord over every other God. And so, now, every other time that God has been mentioned in Jonah, it has been Yahweh. It's Israel's name for God, the God of Israel, the God of covenant with Israel. Why would, the, why would the author do this? Well, the Assyrians, uh, like most cultures in the Mideast at that time, worshipped a number of deities. They had gods for this, they had gods for that, they had gods all over the place. What the author wants us to see is that when the Ninevites repent, 
They recognize that this is not just another one of the gods to be uh, added to their pantheon of gods, but the, the God of all gods, the supreme, all-powerful God of the universe, Elohim. This is the God that they believe. And they bow down before him in an appropriate manner and by fasting and donning sackcloth. Sackcloth. What is that? Anybody ever worn burlap? It's, burlap is really rough. It's scratchy. Let me tell you something. Sackcloth is burlap on steroids. Sackcloth was made out of goat's hair. And if they didn't have any goat's hair, they would make it out of camel hair. So it was put on symbolically. In the Mideast, sackcloth uh, was representative of a willingness to suffer, a willingness to go through pain. But in the Bible, in the Bible, sackcloth is symbolic of repentance. It's symbolic of surrender. It's symbolic of a grieving over sin, a sign of total surrender to God. And look at this. The Ninevites repented from the highest of the high to the lowest of the low. How high did it go? Verse 6, the word reached the king of Nineveh. And he arose from his throne, removed his robe, covered himself with sackcloth, and sat in ashes. Now, there's a little bit of discussion here over who this king is. Uh, it's not the king of Assyria. We have no record of a king of Assyria being in Nineveh. It's probably a regional king like we saw regional kings in the southern kingdom when, when uh, Joshua moved into Canaan. Um, the historical truth of the matter is the historical record of Assyria uh, in the 7th and 8th centuries is fairly sparse. We don't have a lot of information on them during their period of decline. But it's likely that as the nation was in decline, some of the local kings rose up in power, and that may be the case here. In any event, Nineveh has a king. There's a king over Nineveh. And Nineveh, we need to remember this, is a very large and very rich city. It was a cultural hub. It was a transportation hub. It was a trade hub. And that meant that its king was very rich. Its king was very powerful. And the king humbles himself. The city humbles itself, and the king humbles itself. He sets aside, the king sets aside the symbols of his kingship, his robe and his crown, and he puts on sackcloth. And he steps off the throne, he steps away from the seat of all of his power and all of his significance, and sits down in dust and ashes. And because because this is an integral part of the story, we are to presume that he does this in a very public manner. He does it in front of the entire city. The king has humbled himself before his people. But even more importantly, he has humbled himself before the God of all the universe. Can you imagine the impact that had on his people? To see their king acknowledge the one true God... That kind of seals the deal for him, doesn't it? The king realizes they're in trouble. But listen, listen carefully. It's not the warriors that the king fears. Look at the text. What the king fears is the judgment of God, the oncoming judgment of God. The king has heard Jonah's proclamation, and now he makes one of his own. Starting in verse 7, By the decree of the king and his nobles, let neither man nor beast, 
herd nor flock, taste anything. Let them not feed or drink water, but let man and beast be covered with sackcloth and let them call out mightily to God. Let everyone turn from his evil way and from the violence that is in his hands. He calls for a fast. The people called for them for one. Now he orders one. And everyone is to wear sackcloth, even the animals. I like that. Can you imagine riding up in the northern part of the county and seeing cows covered in sackcloth? It's kind of a humorous picture, isn't it? Why would the king want the animals covered in sackcloth? Listen, the king wants to make sure that everybody in his region understands that he is bowing down to the God of all creation, the God of all living things. So the king is going to make sure that all living things in his region are covered in sackcloth and have a symbol of repentance, even the animals. He's submitting everything he has and everything he owns to the Father in heaven. And look what he does. He calls for repentance. He calls for them to turn from their evil ways. Now, what end does he tell them to turn from their evil ways for? To be, to, to be delivered from the warring tribes? No. To be delivered from the wrath of God. The king has had his revelation. The word of God has shown him his evil nature. The evil nature of his people that's shown him his hopeless condition. The king feels the same helplessness that Jonah felt as he was thrown into that churning sea. And the king realizes that he and his people need to be saved. They need to be saved. Not from the world outside, but saved from the judgment of God. Indeed, the king says, who knows, in verse 9, God may turn and relent and turn from his fierce anger so that we may not perish. You see, the king is aware that without the grace of God, they perish. i got to ask you right here, can there be any clear proclamation of the gospel in the Old Testament and what we see right here? And look where it comes from, a city filled with Gentiles. This is the confession of the city of Nineveh, of a whole region. And that leads us to our, our third event in the revival, God's compassion poured out on a nation of pagans who have repented and turned towards him. When God saw what they did, how they turned from their evil way, God relented of the disaster that he had said he would do to them, and he did not do it. There's the raw, unbridled compassion of God poured out on those whom he created. They repented, and he relented. We need to be careful with the word relented here. If you read in your King James, they have a loose translation of the word that says that God repented. Uh, God does not repent. He doesn't confess the things that he's done wrong. I don't think that's a very good translation. The ESV, the NIV, and most of your modern translation use relented, but we've got to be careful how we apply that because it doesn't mean that God changed his mind. It doesn't mean that God abandoned the old plan and came up with a better plan now that the situation had changed. To our Western mindset, that's what it sounds like. But to an ancient Hebrew, 
The verb here means he made a decision to act otherwise with, with no bearing on the previous decision of whether it was good or bad. He just made a decision to act otherwise. He's not trying to, to improve upon the situation. So we need to keep that in mind. We can't always give a literal translation of the words we see. Another thing that we need to think about is that God's prophecies concerning the Ninevites was a typical pronouncement of judgment, of oncoming judgment, which are always conditional in Scripture, aren't they? God is constantly saying, if you do this, I'll do that. If you do this over here, well, I'm going to do this over here. I mean, isn't that what we saw at Shechem with Joshua and the people? They stood on the two mountains. They pronounced the blessings, pronounced the curses. God said, if you're obedient, you'll get the blessings. If you're disobedient, you're going to get the curses. They're, they're conditional. So Jeremiah talks about God's conditional prophecies in Jeremiah 18, 8 through 10. Listen to this. And if that nation concerning which I have spoken turns from its evil, I will relent of the disaster that I intended to do it. And if at any time I declare concerning a nation or a kingdom that I will build and plan it, and if it does evil in my sight, not listening to my voice, then I will relent of the good that I intended to do it. So we should understand that some of God's blessings are conditional. I believe that regardless of the conditional nature of those blessings, God knows what we're going to do. He's made arrangements ahead of time, but he's told us ahead of time, if you do this, I'll bless you. If you do this, I'll, I'll give you hardship. I believe he does that so that we have no excuse. So that when the hardship comes upon us, we can't say, well, I didn't know. I didn't understand. Nobody told me. If I'd have known that, I wouldn't do this. So his proclamations are accurate all the time. We should also try to avoid anthropomorphizing God. That means that we should try to avoid giving God human attributes. When we read about God's wrath, when we read about his love, when we read about his compassion, when we read about his anger, we shouldn't translate those as human attributes. There are facets of God that are unfathomable. There are facets of God that we don't understand, things that we can't comprehend. These are the things that Paul was talking about when he wrote his letter to the Corinthian church, the first one, where he says in 12, 12, for now we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. Now I know in part, then I shall know fully, even as I have been fully known. So we're not always going to be able to figure God out. We can't just tie him up in a pretty bow and say, I got a handle on this, don't worry. I know how God functions. I know his char character and nature, and I know it fully. We do indeed know some of how God functions. We know the necessities. Uh, we actually know quite a bit, but we don't know all of it. There are mysteries surrounding God. And I got to tell you something. Those mysteries are 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 necessary because in those mysteries we see the glory of God. They're intended to show us His glory. There are things that you and I have to receive about God in faith just because God says they're true. I'll tell you, if you take a search of the Scriptures, you're going to see that God is not a man that does not change His mind, and you're also going to see that God changes His mind. Now we look at them and go, ah! You know, we have to receive that. 
We see tension all over the scriptures. What we don't see tension are the essentials of getting saved and the need for the church to respond to the gospel and the need for the church to portray the gospel. So God, there are mysteries about God that we have to receive in faith. What we do know about this situation in Joshua chapter 3, about this revival, is that the Ninevites repented. They sincerely, contritely repented. And God relented from the disaster he had said he would do to them. Those people are saved. And I'll tell you how we know they're saved. Jesus talks about it. Pastor, Pastor Peter, Elder Peter, uh, read the scripture out of Matthew. Jesus said they repented. It was an incredible revival. Jonah spoke God's truth, and the whole region, filled with, with hundreds of thousands of people probably, everyone confessed and repented, and they were Gentiles. It's an absolutely dazzling display of God's grace. It's a dazzling display of biblical truth. And it shows us that God intends to save more than just the Jews. His truth is for all who will listen and all who will repent. So, those are our three events in the revival. Jonah's commission, Nineveh's confession, and God's compassion. It's a really dramatic story. And it's about to get even more interesting. If you go back and take a look at chapter 1 and chapter 2, you'll see that we really don't know too much about why Jonah tried to go the other way. Well, we're about to find out. We're about to find out why we've chosen to name this series The Angry Prophet. We haven't really seen much of Jonah's anger yet other than his reluctance to obey God. But let's pause right here and see what we've learned from chapter 3 of Jonah. Here's the first lesson. Jonah was saved so that he could preach the gospel. Jonah was saved so that he could preach the word of God. This is a life lesson, loved ones. The, I've said it before. The only, reason, the only reason the church is here is to preach the gospel. The only reason that you and I are saved is for the sake of the gospel. There's no reason to leave us here on earth other than to be witnesses for Jesus Christ. If, if the goal was our salvation, if the ultimate goal was to get us into heaven, we'd get saved and God would take us up there. And that, that would be kind of a neat witness. And what happened to him? I think he went to heaven. How'd that happen? <laughs> okay. So there's no reason for the church to be here other than for the sake of the gospel. Now, we are not all going to stand in the pulpit on Sunday morning, but we are still on earth so that we can, in some manner, portray the gospel. And we do this as a group. We do this as a body. We do it as a local body within the church. We do it as a, a universal body, as the body of Christ. So, some of us will preach on Sunday morning. As a matter of fact, you're about to get a taste of that towards the end of summer when I go on sabbatical, when Kelly and I leave in April. Um, what comes after April? September and, and, and October. Pardon me? August. That's why I got messed up. Thank you. If I said April, we would be gone by now, wouldn't we? Yeah. So, 
So when we're gone between August and October, you see how excited I am. We've got three men that are going to help Pastor Scott fill the pulpit. They are Deacon Fred Reed. They are Deacon, look at Fred's big smile. Where is he sitting in the back again? Deacon Bill Schwetke. There's Bill's big smile. And our own catechizer, John Sellers. Uh, these three men right now I'm working with and we're preparing for their sermons. They're excited. Uh, they're ready to bring the word of God. Uh, they're here to give Scott a break so that every three or four weeks or so he can have some time to get caught up and get some rest. Uh, so they're going to preach the gospel on Sunday morning, but not everybody is called to do that. Some of us will share the gospel by standing out on Main Street and sharing the love of Christ with a cool bottle of water and a little bag of cookies. Some of us will share it by baking those cookies. Some of us will share the gospel by bringing the water into the storehouse so we have it to hand out when we're down on Main Street. Some, some will share Christ by sitting down with little children and painting faces and have opportunities to do that. Others yet will spread the gospel this summer as we amount an aggressive program to go out into the community with our monthly luncheons, with our stories in the park, with Brenda's Christ in Action uh, a program that's going to run throughout the summer and, and taking our kids into the city and a few other projects that we'll be talking about over the next few weeks or so. A group of our folks will share the gospel in Romania at the end of July this year as we go for another visit to Pastor Ovidia and his ministry to the gypsies in, in Romania. Some will share the gospel by working in the background, by doing administrative chores, by teaching, by working in the nursery, by working in the children's ministry, by helping us clean and maintain this grand old lady that God has blessed us with so that we can continue inside the walls of the church to equip the people who come here for the ministry of the gospel, to equip our church family to live and preach the gospel out in their homes and their neighborhoods and in their schools and in their workplaces and in the, in the, the people that they associate with. See, the gospel is out there. It's beyond the walls of Warranted Bible Fellowship. And each of us, like Jonah, has been saved to be part of carrying the gospel out there. We're not here to minister to ourselves on Sunday morning. We're here to be equipped to live and portray Jesus Christ out there in the community. Somebody say amen. Now that's our first lesson. That's a practical one. It's easy to grasp. It's easy to walk out. There are sign-up sheets over at the, the exit doors if you want to help out with stories in the park. We'll be doing more of that this year. So here's our second lesson. Grace comes before repentance. Read this with me. Grace comes before repentance. That's catechism sub two this morning. You're going to have to think about this one a little bit. Let me explain what I'm talking about. The Ninevites, I mean, the way we see this is the Ninevites repented and God blessed, right? That's, that's kind of how folks would view the revival in, in Nineveh. As a matter of fact, a lot of modern-day revivals, as we talked about in the beginning, are designed to get people to repent so that they can receive God's grace. But think about, think about Jonah and his story. Just consider this for a second. And let me ask you this question. 
When did the grace of God begin flowing toward Nineveh? When did the grace of God begin flowing toward Nineveh? Think about it. Wasn't it when Jonah was called to go there? Isn't that why God saved Jonah? Isn't that why God gave Jonah a second chance? Because his plan was to get Jonah to Nineveh. Let's go back a little bit farther. Isn't that why God made Jonah a prophet? Let's go back further than that. Isn't that why Jonah was born? Now, if you want to really give yourself a headache, isn't that why Nineveh was lost? Isn't that why Nineveh was lost? Chew on that one over lunch. Do you doubt for even a moment that it was God's plan to shed His grace on the people of Nineveh? Some people would have you believe that God did all of this and then sat in heaven and said, gee, I hope they pick me. I think, I think God did this because his plan was to grant Nineveh repentance. What? No, 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 John, repentance is something we work up. I mean, we get emotional and then we repent. Grab your pencils for a second. Go ahead, pick up your pencils. Write this down in your bulletin. Acts eleven eighteen. Second Timothy Acts eleven eighteen. Second Timothy two twenty five. You read those verses and then send me an email as to what they say. Because I'm going to tell you something. They reveal something about how repentance comes to us, brothers and sisters. Some folks think there can be no grace without revival. Jonah's story tells us that there can be no revival without grace. No grace, no revival. And I told you I'm going to make you think about this one. Because up until this moment, it's been about something that happened 4,000 years ago. Take that concept, no grace, no revival, and now apply it to your salvation. You see, this is a characteristic of how God operates among his people. No grace, no salvation. Some people think our repentance catalyzes God grace, God's grace, catalyzes our salvation. Yet right here in Jonah 3, we see that it's God's grace that catalyzes repentance. Now let me tell you why this is important. And let me tell you why you need to, to let this bake a little bit in your mind and, and in your heart. If you understand that long before you got saved, 
God had intended you to receive his grace, you will have an all new perception of what grace is. And when, you, when that perception hits you, brothers and sisters, it will drive you to your knees in gratitude for God having done something that you were unable to do. God choosing you because he's God, not because of you, not because you made a good decision, not because you figured things out, but because he's God. When you apply that to your situation, when you get a clear view of the magnitude of God's grace, when your tears are done being shed in thanks to God for what he's done, then we come together as the body of Christ. We stand up and we portray the gospel. Amen? That's what we're called to do, portray the gospel. God didn't save us so that we'd have a good time in heaven. He saved us so that we could be Christ to a lost world. Church, arise. Stand up.